Thanks for checking out the weekly sermon from Church of the Resurrection. We pray that God will use this message to speak to you and help you grow in your faith journey. We'd like to invite you to join us next week at one of our services, whether in live worship online at core.org live or in person at one of our locations in the Kansas City area. Church of the Resurrection is one church in multiple locations. To learn more about our service times and ministries, please visit core.org. We hope you enjoy this message. As we continue in worship, I invite you to hear these words from the Gospel of Matthew. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up a mountain. He sat down and his disciples came to him. He taught them. Jesus concluded his message saying, everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing and understanding of scripture. More than 3 billion people claim to follow Jesus. But aside from a few verses, how many actually know what he taught? In fact, much of what people think Jesus taught, he never said. Jesus's message is not only life-changing, but world-changing. Join us as we study words that change the world, the message of Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, I was in the Holy Land with two different groups from Church of the Resurrection. The first group was 189 people. The second group was young leaders who were in their 20s and 30s. There was 44 of them. And one of the things we do when we're around the Sea of Galilee is we go to the place where I think most likely Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. Now, there's a church there called the Mount of Beatitudes, and that's probably not likely the place, in my opinion. But there is a tall mountain in, around the Sea of Galilee. It's called Mount Arbel. Uh, this is a picture of it from the Sea of Galilee. And you see that tall point <clears throat> in the foreground. That is what I at least imagine uh, is the mountain where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe halfway up, maybe on the grassy parts you can see there. Maybe he hiked all the way to the top. And, uh, but we take a bus around the backside. We go to the top of the mountain. And you can see this next photograph, uh, one of the groups that I had there. And I asked them to take out their pocket testaments and we stand over, we sit overlooking from the top of the mountain, we sit overlooking the Sea of Galilee and all of the villages that Jesus visited there during his ministry, and we read the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I really love doing that. It's just one of those exercises. I give them about 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes to read as much as they can of the Sermon on the Mount. And then I ask them to um, make a little check mark by the verses that really spoke to them. And, uh, and then if we get a chance, and with one of the groups, we actually hike down the mountain and I asked them to talk together about which verses spoke most to them. Because what I know is in the Sermon on the Mount, the words of Jesus, some part of it's gonna to speak to everyone at any given time in their lives. So today we're gonna to continue in our series of sermons on the words of Jesus, words that change the world. And we're gonna focus on the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm gonna preach this sermon a bit differently than the way I preach most sermons. As I was reading through Matthew chapters five through seven, I thought, what part do I leave out? And I realized I'm not gonna leave any of it out. 
I'm gonna let you hear the words of Jesus. I'm gonna invite you to follow along. I want you to be able to check mark in your Bible. If you have access to a Bible, I'd love for you to write in your Bible, put a little check mark next to the verses that speak to you or circle the ones that speak to you or grab a piece of paper and write down the things that you wanna remember and reflect upon. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we are gonna just walk through Matthew chapters five through seven, the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't have one with you, if you can use your phone and go to core.org slash next, you're gonna find that we've included a PDF there. We've included the text of the Sermon on the Mount there for you. So you can at least follow along as I'm preaching through the sermon. Now, last week we learned that the central focus of Jesus' preaching and teaching was what? Do you remember? It was the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the rule of God. And and Jesus uses that term in various ways. And sometimes he substitutes the kingdom of heaven, often in Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of heaven, the same thing. And he's often using this to describe the world as it was meant to be. God is king everywhere, but on earth, he gave us the capacity to have dominion over the earth. And we either use that as, as you know, those who are following God as a part of his kingdom, and we do his will, or we do our own will. And so often that's what we do. And so the world is a mess. And, and so Jesus is saying the world as it's supposed to be is the kingdom of God. He's also referring to the rest of the cosmos as the kingdom of God. That is where God's work and God's word and God's will is always done. But here on earth, not so much. And so for us, the world as it's supposed to be, the kingdom of God. It's also this movement, this this state of life where where we decide God is king in my life. And so I'm gonna follow Jesus and I'm gonna live into God's will. And suddenly the kingdom of God is within me and, and is felt all around me as I do God's will. So Jesus says, the kingdom of God is upon us. He came to embody and incarnate that kingdom, God's will, God's reign, God's, God's purposes, God's ideal for the world. He came to incarnate all of that and so much more. And he invited us to follow him, to repent and to follow him. And then in this movement, we begin to see the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven, just as we pray. So the very next thing that Jesus does is he goes, uh, he goes to the Galilee. After going to preach in his hometown, he goes to the Galilee and he is beginning to, you know, there's a group of people who are beginning to follow him. And he goes up on a mountain, maybe the mountain I just showed you a moment ago, Mount Arbel. He goes up on a mountain and there are his disciples that come up to listen to him. And in Matthew chapters five through seven, he begins to lay out for them the ethics and the spirituality of the kingdom of God. This is the, this is the marching orders. This is his manifesto for how God's people are to live their lives. And he's gonna set a really high bar in here. So when you read the the Sermon on the Mount, there's some people who've said, well, this is just to convict us of sin because you know, there's no way anybody could live up to that. I don't think that's true. I think Jesus is trying to say, this is how you're meant to live your lives. But we also know none of us are gonna perfectly do that. We're all gonna struggle with parts of it. So I would rather have him set the bar high and then offer me grace when I blow it than to set the bar low when really we're supposed to live like this. So as you're reading this, don't get discouraged. But instead, recognize this is the ideal. This is the way we're meant to live our lives and we're gonna blow it and we're gonna need grace. All right, when I think about the Sermon on the Mount, I wanted to share with you a few comments from other folks about how important this message is from Jesus. So E. Stanley Jones, the great Methodist missionary to India said this, the Sermon on the Mount seems dangerous. It challenges the whole underlying conception on which modern society is built. As you read it, I, wanna, I want you to just think about how does this challenge the conception of when, upon which modern society is built? World War II General Omar Bradley, he was the general of the army during World War II. Uh, he says this, we have grasped the mystery of the atom and rejected the Sermon on the Mount. Ours is a world of nuclear giants and ethical infants. Uh, English priest and theologian, John R.W. Stott said this, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. It is the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. 
I want you to catch that. This is Jesus' description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do, and yet often not obeyed, he said. And then Gandhi said this, if I had to face only the Sermon on the Mount and my own interpretation of it, I should not hesitate to say, oh yes, I am a Christian. But in my humble opinion, what passes as Christianity is a negation of the Sermon on the Mount. Can you imagine that? All of these people are saying the same thing, that we know the Sermon on the Mount, we have the Sermon on the Mount, but we don't live it. And sometimes we even negate it by our lifestyles as Christians. And so today, as we're looking at the words that change the world and these words change the world, I'm gonna invite us to listen carefully, to put a check mark or circle those verses that seem to speak to us or write them down if you've got a piece of notepad. And, uh, and then let's use this coming week where if you use our GPS, our daily scripture reading, you're gonna have a chance to read the entire Sermon on the Mount on your own this week. I want you to be listening and I want you to be able to pray, Lord, help me be more like this. Help me to be more like this. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us as we hear your words to become more like them, to internalize them, to be formed and shaped by them, that we might be a part of your kingdom in your holy name, amen. All right, the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. And, uh, and I love how Robert Schuller once said, you know, these are the Beatitudes. These are attitudes that we should cultivate. But I've come to think that maybe not all of the Beatitudes are attitudes we should cultivate. I think the first four describe the reality on our planet where there's pain and brokenness in the world. So I share with you from the Common English Bible, the first four Beatitudes, and I'd like to invite you to join me in reading them together. So let's say them together. Happy are people who are hopeless because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Happy are people who grieve because they will be made glad. Happy are people who are humble because they will inherit the earth. Happy are people who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness because they will be fed until they are full. What we find in the Beatitudes in these first four in particular is not a state that we should ascribe to. It's a state of what happens in the world. Nobody should be praying, God, please help me be hopeless. And when you read these other ones, uh, of course, it says poor in spirit in the traditional translation here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed, happy, either way. You're looking at a positive state. And yet for those people in that moment, they are not in a positive state. And, and poor in spirit, many people take to mean humble. But I think the CEB is right. These are people who have lost all sense of spirit. Like they feel hopeless in the particular moment that they're living in. And then those who grieve and the word can signify bewailing or moaning or groaning or such overwhelming pain, not just from the death of a loved one, but from a whole host of things in our lives that bring pain to us. And happy are the humble, but the humble here are those who are pushed down, those who are humbled, the, you know, the people who are the lowly. That's, that's who he's talking to. Happy are the, are the lowly. And then, and then happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I always took that to mean that you have a, an attitude in which you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Righteousness here is also the Greek word for justice. And I think what it's saying is the people who longed for, they hungered for justice, they didn't get it. They were the people who were on the wrong end of the stick when it came to justice or righteousness. And in all of these cases, he's saying, you can be happy today, happy, not the warm, fuzzy feeling we have, but a sense of well-being. If you trust that in the kingdom of God, there's a great reversal that's coming. And those of you who are experiencing hopelessness now will know hope in the future. You'll inherit the kingdom of heaven. And those of you who are grieving right now are gonna find joy. And those of you who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness and justice because you didn't receive it are gonna find you're filled to overflowing 
in the kingdom of heaven. Again, what scholars have talked about here is, is the great reversal we find in Jesus' teaching. So we find it starts with Mary, the mother of Jesus, who in her Magnificat says that God brings down the powerful from their thrones, but he lifts up the lowly. He sends away those who are full with enough food, hungry, but the hungry sends away well-fed. I mean, this is this, this concern that Christ has for the lowly. And, and we find it in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We find it in Jesus' words where he said, the kingdom, in the kingdom of God, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And those who serve, those who humble themselves and serve will be lifted up. They will be the great in the kingdom of God. So this is where it begins. It begins with this list of, listen, the kingdom of God is, is a place where things are gonna be transformed and utterly reversed from what the society and the world around us says is right. You know, the, the, those on the top are like the, you know, the, they're the winners in all of this. And Jesus says, no, the winners are gonna be the people who were at the bottom in the kingdom of God. All right, now the next thing he, do, he does is he talks about our uh, mission. And so when he talks about our mission, turn to Matthew 5, 13 through 17. And Jesus starts by saying, you are the salt of the earth. You've heard that phrase before, no doubt, salt of the earth. But what does it mean in Jesus' context? The salt of the earth here, uh, well, as we think about it, we remember in the first century, salt was used as a preservative for meat. So you packed it in salt and, and then it would be preserved for a long period of time to be able to eat later on. So maybe it's about preserving the goodness in the world. And so he may be saying to his disciples, again, remember he's speaking to his disciples. He says, you, plural, you are the salt of the earth. You're to be preserving what's good in the world. And that's entirely possible that's what he means. But, but you know, it's, it's probably likely that he's talking about just something as simple as you're adding, you know, goodness to everything else you touch. I don't know if you ever have corn on the cob in the summertime. It's my favorite thing to eat in the summer is sweet corn, peaches and cream and others, you know, but there's something to it. You cook it, but you really got to add, you got to slather it in my opinion with some good butter and salted butter, not unsalted butter. And then you sprinkle it with salt and suddenly the flavor just pops in your mouth. Or I think about French fries. These are Culver's French fries. And I love these crinkle cut French fries. But you know what? If you get them without salt, they're just not quite the same. You just need to add a little bit of salt to make those good. Or soup, I like a good can of soup, but this is sodium free or reduced sodium uh, soup. Can I just tell you? I can't eat this stuff. I just can't because you just need something to make it pop. That's what salt did in Jesus' day. Everybody understood that. And of course, salt is necessary for life. They didn't understand it at the time, perhaps, <clears throat> but there are medical conditions that come when you have too little salt in your diet and you find that you can, you can have muscle cramps, you can get dizzy, you can even die from not having enough sodium in your diet. And so, so I think what Jesus had in mind was maybe all of those things, but you are the salt of the earth. I think mainly he meant that you're supposed to bring the goodness out of everything you touch. You as the church, you as my disciples, he's saying that, and you as individual Christians. I want you to think about that for a moment. This is part of your mission every day is to be a salty Christian. And I think about the salt shaker and, you know, we gather here and we get sort of resalted when we gather for worship. But it's not, you know, the purpose of salt is not meant to be, you know, contained in the salt container, the salt shaker. Of course, we're meant to be shaken out into the world, right? And we're meant to be bringing goodness and life to everything else that we touch and everyone that we meet. I wanna ask you this question, are people better because they know you? Are they better human beings? Are they better Christians if they're Christians? Uh, I have a, you know, a number of good friends who are Jews. I say, I hope you're a better Jew because you're hanging around with me and I'm a better Christian because I hang around with you. I'm just wondering what kind of impact are you having on other people? Because Jesus says that we are to be the salt of the earth. And if salt isn't salty anymore, it's good for nothing but to be trampled underfoot. You are the salt of the earth. Then he goes on to say, you are the light of the world. And I love this passage. This passage has been one that shaped who we are as a church for 32 years. We are called by Jesus to be light for the world. One of my favorite things they added to flashlight or to uh, cameras and uh, to phones, really started with phones, right? Was the flashlight. 
And I love the fact that there's a flashlight here because anytime I'm in the darkness, I can just whip it out. This happens a lot of times when I'm at the lake and it's dark and we don't have much lighting in certain places. And I get it out to help other people be able to see their way. We were in a tunnel in, in uh, Jerusalem the other day and, and uh, I got out my phone so that people could find their way and not trip up when they were walking through the tunnel. And you know, it helps us to find our way, but it also acts as a beacon when you're feeling afraid in the darkness. Maybe you've been in the darkness before. Maybe you've been there this week and you find yourself feeling alone or afraid. And when he says that you are the light of the world, part of what we're doing is trying to shine light into the world to show the right path and the right way. And, and part of what we're meant to do is to live our lives in such a way that we bring light into dark places. We push back the darkness, as we say a lot around here, or punch holes in the darkness. But, but sometimes we're just meant to come to people who are walking in darkness to help them find the light of Christ, to embody the light of Christ. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And he said, now you go be the light of the world. And, and so I'm just wondering, are you living in a way that people see what it means to be human? By your actions? Are you shining a light in the, into the path so that they can find their way? Are you embodying the light of Christ for people who are walking in darkness? I was working on the sermon this week. It was about 9.30 at night. And I received a text message from one of my good friends. We've been friends for a long time. And, and the text message was a cry for help. And I could just tell this guy was in trouble. Now, if he'd lived in Kansas City, I would have left my house immediately, called him, and I would have driven straight to his house. But but he lives several hours away. And so I, I just called and I said, hey, what's going on? And the moment he heard my voice, he started to sob. I have never heard this man sob before. And he started to sob and he began, you know, as he composed himself, I said, just take a breath. And he, he stopped to breathe. And, and after a minute or two, he was able to talk. And he described to me something that was happening to his son and how terrified he was for what was happening there. And as I was listening to him, you know, I, I began to lament with him. And, and you know, I, I wanted to just reach in and say, hey, hold on, you know, you're, you're, you're catastrophizing. It's, you know, it, maybe it's not going to be as bad as you're worried about. But, you know, any attempt to try to say something like that at that moment wasn't really going to be helpful. In fact, at one point when I started, he said, hey, I don't want to hear that right now. What he needed was for me to lament with him, to weep with him. You remember Job when he was going through all the hell that he went through and his friends were there with him and, and you know, they ended up trying to give him advice. And it's like, that's not what he needed. He just needed somebody to lament with him. And that's what my friend needed. And so for 45 minutes, I just lamented with him. And then finally, after about 45 minutes, I began to say, now you and I know how this works. We've been with enough people who've been through hell on earth. Let's just talk about this for a little bit. And little by little to try to offer a little morsel of hope here and a little morsel of hope there. And, and, and then by the time we were finished, you know, this guy who's like, I don't even know if I believe anymore is starting to go, okay, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm feeling, I'm feeling, he didn't say this, but I would say he was feeling a little light again in his life. You see, sometimes we have to do that for each other. What I know about him is he's gonna do that for me sometime too. And so we have to act as light for each other and we have to act as light for the world. And that's what Jesus said. And he said, a city set upon a hill. You as a church are not just individual people, but you together are a city set upon a hill that can't be hidden. And so then he says this, let your light so shine before others that they might see your good works and give glory to your father who's in heaven. Are you being light? As a church, we're trying to be light, as much light as we can, as bright as we can so that the world's darkness might be pushed back. So this is our mission to be salt and light. And then he's gonna tell us how we go about doing that. And he's gonna to talk to us about the kingdom ethics. So, so turn to Matthew chapter five, verse 20. And in Matthew five twenty, Jesus says this, I say to you that unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the legal experts and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a pretty stark word. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the most pious people in Jesus' day, the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees have often gotten a bad rap. They were very much like Jesus in their theology in many ways. And there were a lot of good Pharisees, but there were also some who were religious hypocrites. And we often use that term Pharisee to describe a religious hypocrite. Somebody who says one thing, but they really live something different. 
And so Jesus is saying, you've got to have a, a righteousness that exceeds that. Well, what does that look like? And so Jesus is going to start unpacking the commandments, some of the commandments in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, including two of the 10 commandments. And he's going to say, okay, you've heard that it was said this, but I'm going to tell you what that really means. So he starts with murder. And it's, it's pretty easy in 521, pretty easy to say it for most of us. You know what? I'm not going to murder anybody. I, I never intend to. I hope and pray that I never, you know, would intentionally take up a weapon and try to kill another human being. Now, war is different. There's, you know, different circumstances. But, but in terms of what this is talking about, I don't ever intend to do that. But Jesus says, you've heard that it was said of old, do not murder. But I say to you, now he's going to tell us that higher righteousness. He says, don't even call people names. Don't call them idiot or fool. Don't, don't have angry outbursts at other human beings. Because when you do that, you're already violating in your heart and you're bringing harm to other people by the words that you're speaking. And he says, be reconciled to people. Instead of angry outbursts, you learn to be patient. You learn, you learn to be able to treat people, you know, to be silent, to not say anything rather than saying something that's gonna be hurtful. Watch what you're saying as we're driving down the road, as we're thinking about people who irritate us, irritate us or upset us. I had this happen not rec just recently. Uh, I came back from the Holy Land and then I heard about something that somebody had said and done towards our church. And man, it really made me angry, right? And, and then I had to sort of, you know, and, and I wanted to get even. And then I had to step back and go, wait a minute, let's figure out how to do this in a way that I can address the issue and not bring harm to another human being. Uh, that's still not resolved. 527, Jesus says, don't commit adultery. You've heard that it was said of old, don't commit adultery. And then Jesus goes on to say this. He says, I'm telling you, don't even look at a woman with lust in your heart. He's addressing these male disciples. Don't even look at a woman with lust in your heart. Wow. Now, suddenly this is getting to be a much more serious issue than don't commit adultery. That's hard enough for many people. But then to say, I'm not even gonna have thoughts. I'm not even gonna see somebody who's attractive and find myself drawn to them and play with the idea in my mind for a time, which is what often happens for people, which is the stepping stone to committing adultery. And he's saying, no, not even that in the kingdom of God. You look at your sister or your brother and you see them as a respected human being. You treat them with dignity, but you're not spending your time focusing on things that shouldn't happen and can't happen and looking at people as objects to be had. And then you remember, he says how serious this is. He says, and if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And did Jesus literally mean that? No, he's speaking in prophetic hyperbole. He's speaking this very harsh statement to shake people up. And he's using hyperbole and exaggeration to make a point. But his point is not take me literally and cut off your hand or pluck out your eye. He's, his point is take me seriously because this is serious business and can ruin families and can ruin your own life and separate you from God and so take this seriously, control your thinking, your, your patterns of thinking, right? So, so he's calling them to a greater righteousness. The commandment's pretty simple. Just I'm not super simple, but simple enough. Don't commit adultery, don't murder. But he's saying it goes way, way beyond that. Are you checking anything yet in your scriptures, circling anything that might speak to you? In 531, he, he says, uh, uh, it's said in the commandments, Moses said that you can give a woman a certificate of divorce. There was uh, not a no-fault divorce in Jesus' day. There was a her-fault divorce. It was always her fault. The woman couldn't give a divorce to a man or ask for one, but he could. Uh, the man could divorce a woman for, and this was debated by the rabbis, but some believed for any reason whatsoever. And you see, when he gave her a certificate of divorce, there were few jobs that a woman could have in the first century. She was already used. She'd already been used by some man. And so the chances of her remarrying went way down. I mean, there was a whole lot of problems here. And so you had a woman who ends up, with, uh, ends up in poverty with no one to protect her or watch over her in, a, her in a patriarchal society. And so Jesus is saying to them, listen, it's not supposed to be that way. 
right? And, and, and you're gonna cause harm to her and even to yourself if you're doing this. And, and, you know, in another place when Jesus teaches this, the disciples say, wow, how can we possibly, you know, live into this if we don't even have that as an option, and, right? I mean, there's just, it's, it's, he's calling for something deeper and higher. Now, you know, when we get to divorce, are there exceptions to this? Yes, we'll talk about that some other time. But what I want us to see here is that Jesus is raising the bar. You know, it's not the, you know, the simple, uh, you know, divorce that, that in the first century, a Jewish man, un, you know, displeased with his wife could simply set her aside. There's humanity and there's pain and brokenness that needs to be taken into account. 537, don't swear oaths, but tell the truth. See, people in that day had certain, you know, a, a little kind of formula that you could make. You could swear by the temple or you could swear by the, the gifts on the temple. Or you could swell, swear by this or that thing. And, and those, each one of those oaths that you would take had a, you know, differing level of severity. And Jesus is like, stop it already. Okay, don't, don't be manipulating the truth. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Tell the truth. Tell the truth in whatever you're doing. And then uh, we find the Lex Talianus. The Lex Talianus in the Old Testament says, uh, says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This was a law of retaliation. And, and so if, you had, if, if somebody had hit you and blinded you in one eye, uh, this was limiting the kind of retribution you could have. And so you were allowed to be able to take out their eye if they took out your eye. Or if they broke a tooth, you could break one of their teeth. Or, or you know, there's a whole host of things, but it was limiting. It was, it was actually an exercise in trying to, uh, trying to bring about some kind of moderation and revenge. Like you can only get revenge equal to what happened to you, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. And Jesus says, wait a minute, what, what is all this talk about revenge anyway? Stop it, stop it. And then what he says is to show people grace. That instead, if somebody strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. If somebody demands that you carry their pack, you know, a Roman soldier, that you carry their backpack one mile, carry it a second mile. If somebody takes your coat from you, give them your cloak as well. If they need it, give it to them. I mean, this is a pattern. Like who does this? Except for how does it change the world when we stop living out of revenge and we start living out of grace? I wonder, do you ever struggle with needing to get even, to get revenge when somebody's wronged you? Make a check, circle the verse. All right, verse, uh, the last piece of this uh, part of the Sermon on the Mount is when Jesus says this, you've heard that it was said of old to love your neighbors. And then Jesus goes on to say, but I tell you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. I wonder if you've ever found yourself in a place where there was somebody who hurt you, wronged you. They, were, they maybe weren't technically your enemy, but they were somebody who was, it had just wronged you. And you found yourself in a place where you could get it even, or you could say bad things about them, or you could do something else, but instead you chose to bless them. I watched this happen with a neighbor once and uh, one neighbor who'd been hurt by another neighbor and, and the neighbor had been hurt. I just was so in awe that she decided that she was gonna bless that neighbor across the street who had been uh, the one who brought harm, who'd said you know, not charitable things about her. And you know, that changed things. That relationship began to change when the one person sought to bless instead of getting revenge, sought to love her enemy. Not really her enemy. During the Super Bowl, there were a couple of ads that were put out by a group called uh, Jesus Gets Us, He Gets Us. And one of them was entitled, Love Your Enemy. And I thought you might enjoy seeing it. Take a look. Maybe I'm blind Thinking I can see through this And see what's behind Got no way to prove it So maybe I'm lying Take a look in the mirror What 
do you see? Do you see it clearer? Or are you deceived? And what you believe? Cause I'm only human love that commercial because it captures something really true about who Jesus was and that he loves the people that you hate. And then he calls us to love them too. And when we look at all the conflict and the polarization in our world today, what's the answer? How are we ever going to get out of this? If we don't learn to love our enemy, to do good to those who have harmed us or harass us, to, to return blessing in exchange for the pain that sometimes people inflict upon us. That's the answer. That's the, the entire Sermon on the Mount is giving us the answer to the problems that we face as human beings. And Jesus knows it's gonna be hard and there's gonna to need to be a lot of grace because we're gonna fail again and again and again. But he's trying to show us this is the way. This is the way, don't miss it. Do you get that? Do you hear the power his words have when we begin to live them? All right, from here, Jesus begins to uh, begins to talk about kingdom spirituality. So if you turn to chapter six, you're gonna be able to find what Jesus starts to say there. And I want, you to, I want you to see what he says. He says, look at chapter six, verse one, be careful that you don't practice your religion in front of people to draw their attention. If you do, you will have no reward from your father who's in heaven. And here Jesus is talking about the motivation we have for how we live our spiritual life. You know, and it's so interesting, our spirituality so easily becomes a tool to our own narcissism. I mean, our own self-love, our, our desire for affirmation and, and a whole host of other things, our ego. And, and so even when we're trying to do the right thing, sometimes we do the right thing for the wrong reasons. And then it just misses the point. In fact, it sometimes is worse than missing the point. And so Jesus begins to address this with his disciples on that hillside. And maybe none of this relates to you, but I'm telling you, it relates to me. So he begins to talk about giving to the poor. And he says, when you give to the poor, which is an expectation, this is what righteousness looks like, <clears throat> is being mindful of people who, are, who have less than you have. Jesus is teaching this to first century peasants, right? And when he's teaching this, part of what he's saying is, listen, when you give to the poor, don't go broadcasting it. Don't blow a trumpet <clears throat> and have everybody say, hey, look and see what I've just done for this person over here. No, do it quietly. Do it in secret. Don't do it when everybody else can see it. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. You see, if you're doing this for affirmation for people to notice, you're no longer doing it to help that person. They become a tool. You're using them in order to make yourself feel better or to affirm yourself or put your name on the side of a building or whatever it might be. And Jesus is saying, yeah, not that. Not that unless you want your reward to be that. That's your whole reward right there. But he says, instead, do it secretly. Do it, in, you know, do it quietly. Do it for the right reasons, not to use other people to feed your own narcissism. You ever done that before? Where you desperately wanted attention and affirmation for the thing that you did for someone else, I have. I, I don't think I thought about it that way, but, but certainly when I look back, I can see, you know, that was just a little too public. Just be quiet about this. Then, then Jesus goes on to talk about uh, what we do when we're praying. And there were people who prayed flowery, beautiful prayers, and they had their prayer shawls on. And if you, if you head to the Holy Land, you know, it's a kind of a beautiful thing if you're not freaked out by it. You see people even on the airplane who stop and, you know, at their times of prayer and they begin to pray with their prayer shawls. And I've seen people who had no idea what they were doing get terrified when they're on the airplane. But no, it's a beautiful thing facing towards Jerusalem. And people do the same thing, you know, towards Mecca if they're, if they're Muslims. But, but in Jesus' day, there was a way that people had of praying where it was all about being seen by other people. 
Your prayers weren't really about having a conversation with God. And so Jesus says, go into a closet, go into a quiet secret place and pray there where nobody else can see you. And God can see you. And God hears and knows that the reason why you're praying that day isn't to impress anybody else. You're praying for an audience of one. You're praying for God alone in those moments. And he says the same thing about fasting. Don't fast and then tell everybody what you're fasting. You may be fasting something during the season of Lent. Don't tell everybody. Don't look like you're forlorn, you know, instead put on your makeup and get cleaned up and keep going when you're fasting because it's God you're fasting for, not for yourself. Then he starts talking about money. And when we gets in, he gets into money, this is one of the topics he talks about frequently in the gospels. So listen to this, Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Stop collecting treasures for your own benefit on earth where moth and rust eat them and where thieves break in and steal them. Instead, collect treasures for yourselves in heaven where moth and rust don't eat them and where thieves don't break in and steal them. And this is the line, where your treasure is, say it with me if you would, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He goes on to say that we can't serve two masters, both God and money, right? One's gonna be on top and the other beneath. I, I have often shared this with you before in my back pockets, I have a billfold and a Bible, right? And the question is, which one is driving my life? Is it my quest for this or is it my desire to live out this, right? And you can't put this underneath the Bible. You can try and make your faith serve, God, or, you know, serve your resources and your wealth and your business, but it never really works out the way it's supposed to be. Always this serves this. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You cannot have two masters. And then finally he talks about worrying. And he says, don't worry. You worry so much about what you, what you, you, know, what you think you need. You need food and you need clothing and all this, but your heavenly father's gonna provide it to you just like he does for the birds of the air. And this is a hard thing. Don't worry about any of these things. And worrying can't add one inch to your life or a, a day to your life. And then he says this, and these are really critical words for the Sermon on the Mount. So why don't we read them together? Jesus says, desire first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness and all these other things will be given to you as well. Okay, we come to the final words of the Sermon on the Mount. That's chapter seven. And as we look at chapter seven, I'm gonna ask you again, have you found anything you've circled, anything you've checked you know, in, in your Bible to say, yeah, this really relates to me? Because if you haven't found anything that relates to you, I want you to come see me. And I'm gonna give you the keys to the church and you can be the senior pastor of this congregation. Because all these words of Jesus, you know, are calling us to a higher righteousness, calling us to be a part of the kingdom of God. And as we live them, not only are our lives changed, but the world has changed. Okay, so, so these last few words, Matthew 7, one through five, take a look there. And I love this. Jesus tells us not to judge other people. Here's the thing. When you start looking at these things, you go, I got to work on these things. And then you're starting to see a little bit of success. All of a sudden you notice all those other people out there who aren't doing it quite as well as you are. Like it's the people who stopped smoking. And now they start looking down, you know, at everybody else who's still smoking or drinking or whatever it might be, cussing. And, and so suddenly we see how great we're doing. And, and here's the thing. The devil just is a master at taking pride and just using it to tear down every good thing that God is doing in our hearts and lives. Don't judge other people. You see, when you're judging, it's that pride that comes in the way. And then I love the metaphor Jesus uses. Jesus, uh, and I picture the tweezers in a magnifying glass. And Jesus says, don't busy yourself trying to take the splinter out of someone else's eye, right? D don't worry about trying to find the little things that are wrong with somebody else. That's not your job. It's above your pay grade. Instead, he says, take the log out of your own eye. And then maybe you'll be able to help somebody else with the splinter in their own eye. And let me just ask you, how busy are you with tweezers and magnifying glasses and do you notice the log in your own eye? Then Matthew 7, 12, this is great. You know this very well, it's the golden rule. It's right there in the Sermon on the Mount. All this great stuff is in the Sermon on the Mount. Here you go, so let's say it together. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And Jesus says, that's the law and the prophets. That's the, the most authoritative part of the Hebrew Bible. 
is captured in that one line, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You ought to just circle and underline that so that every day this is part of what we strive to be and to live, do unto others. Help me, oh God, today to do unto others as I'd have them do unto me. But you know, it's even better if we can take it from there. And some people call this the platinum rule, do unto others as they would have you do unto them, right? Because sometimes what I want done to me isn't what you want done to you. And so understanding what your needs are and who you are and figuring out how do I do for you what you need done for you? Not necessarily what I would want done for me. All right, then Jesus says this. He's winding down his message. This is it. He says, go in through the narrow gate. So he's summarizing everything else he said. Go in through the narrow gate. The gate that leads to destruction is broad and the road is wide. So many people enter through it. But the gate that leads to life is narrow and the road is difficult and so few people find it. And every time I hear those words of Jesus, I'm reminded of Robert Frost, who I believe was inspired by the words of Jesus, though he never said it was the words of Jesus that inspired these words. Two roads diverged into yellow wood and I took the one less traveled by and that has made all the difference. The narrow road leads to life. Now, finally, these warnings Jesus gives. Matthew 7, 21. He says, not everyone who says to me on the judgment day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my father in heaven. You hear that? There's gonna be people on the judgment day who say, Lord, I prophesied in your name. Look at all the things I did in your name. And he says, I don't, know, I don't even know who you are because you didn't actually live the things I was teaching. All right. Finally, we have these words. By the way, Matthew 7, 23 says to those folks, I've never known you, get away from me. And this is how the Sermon on the Mount ends. And this is how my sermon ends today. Everybody who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise builder who built a house on bedrock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the wind blew and beat against that house. It didn't fall because it was firmly set on bedrock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice will be like a fool who built a house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the wind blew and beat against that house. It fell and was completely destroyed. Lord Jesus, please help us to build our house on the bedrock of your words. Let's pray. God, help us to enter into your kingdom. Help us to build our houses on the bedrock of your words. Help us to bear fruit, to be those who know on the judgment day that you will not say, get away from me. Help us to not judge. Help us to do unto others as you would have them, as they would have us do unto them, and as we would have them do unto us. Please, Lord, help us to seek first your kingdom and to stop collecting treasures on earth, but instead treasures in heaven. May our spiritual acts be to honor you, meet you, and to do your will, not to impress other people or to feed our egos. Help us to love not only our neighbors, but also our enemies. Not to seek revenge, but to show grace. To be honest and faithful. Help us, O oh Lord, in this. Help us to be people of mercy. Please fill us with your light and make us salty Christians, positively impacting all that we see. And Lord, how grateful we are that no matter how hard life might seem now, the hopeless, the grieving, those who've been treated unfairly, that in the kingdom of heaven, they will be filled. Help us to live your Sermon on the Mount in your holy name, amen. Thank you for watching this week's sermon. We'd love for you to join us again for live worship online or in person. 
To learn more about Church of the Resurrection, please visit core.org. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.